Welcome to the Nutrition Facts Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger. I'm thrilled that you've decided to join me today because the more I learn about the latest in nutrition research, the more convinced I am that this information can make a real difference in all our lives, and I like nothing better than sharing it with you. Today we take a close look at fiber, that fabulous stuff that helps decrease our cancer risk, and lowers our risk of colitis, Crohn's disease, appendicitis, constipation. It's something we need to get enough of on a daily basis. So why don't we eat enough of it? In our first story, we share our guidelines on how to read food labels for grain products such as bread and breakfast cereals. When people think fiber, they think constipation. And it's true, if we could get Americans just to eat the minimum recommended daily intake of fiber-containing foods, we could save our country $80 billion, and that's just from the effects on constipation alone. Accumulating evidence indicates that greater dietary fiber intakes reduce risk for diabetes, heart disease, certain cancers, weight gain, obesity, diverticular disease, as well as constipation. So we need to eat more fiber-rich foods, which means eating more whole grains, vegetables, fruits, and legumes— uh, beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils. As fiber intake goes up, the risk of metabolic syndrome appears to go down. Less inflammation, and an apparent stepwise drop in obesity risk. And so, no surprise, perhaps, that greater dietary fiber intake is associated with a lower risk of heart disease— 9% lower risk for every additional 7 grams a day of total fiber consumed. That's just like oh, some rice and beans, or a few servings of fruits and vegetables. How does fiber do its magic? What are the mechanisms by which dietary fiber may extend our lifespan? helps get rid of excess bile, feeds our good bacteria, changes our gut hormones, which collectively helps control our cholesterol and body weight, blood sugar, and blood pressure, which reduces the risk for cardiovascular disease. Reducing inflammation is a whole other mechanism by which fiber may help prevent chronic disease. The accompanying editorial to the Fiber and Heart Disease meta-analysis implored doctors to enthusiastically and skillfully recommend that patients consume more dietary fiber. That means a lot of whole plant foods. If, however, we do buy something packaged, the first word in the ingredients list should be whole, but then the rest of the ingredients could be junk. So a second strategy is to look at the ratio of grams of carbohydrates to grams of dietary fiber. We're looking for about 5 to 1 or less. So, for example, whole wheat Wonder Bread passes the first test. First word is whole, but then it's like corn syrup in a chemistry set. Let's see if it passes the 5 to 1 rule. What you do is divide the carbohydrates by the dietary fiber, 20 divided by 2.7 is about 7. That's more than 5, so it goes back on the shelf. Better than white, though, which clocks in at over 18. Now here's one that makes the cut. 15 divided by 3 equals 5. Can do the same thing with breakfast cereal. Multi-green Cheerio sounds healthy, but as a ratio over 7, and then it just goes downhill from there. 
The editorial concluded, the recommendation to consume diets with adequate amounts of dietary fiber may turn out to be the most important nutritional recommendation of all. In our next story, we explore why the extraordinarily low rates of chronic disease among plant-based populations has been attributed to fiber, but reductionist thinking may lead us astray. Fiber-containing foods may not only help prevent heart disease, but help treat it as well. Heart patients who increase their intake of fiber after their first heart attack reduce their risk of a second, and live longer than those who don't. But what if we really don't want to have a heart attack in the first place? If 7 grams of fiber gets us a 9% reduced risk, would 77 grams a day drop our risk 99%? Well, that's what they used to eat in Uganda, a country in which coronary heart disease, our number one killer, was almost non-existent. Heart disease was so rare among those eating these traditional plant-based diets. There were papers published like this. A case of coronary heart disease in an African? After 26 years of medical practice, they finally recorded their first case of coronary heart disease in a judge consuming a partially westernized diet having fiber-free foods like meat, dairy, and eggs displaced some of the plant foods in his diet. Were there so few cases because Africans didn't live very long? No, the overall life expectancy was low because of diseases of childhood, you know, like infections. But when they reach middle age, they had the best survival, thanks in part to our number one killer being virtually absent. Of course, now diets have westernized across the country, and it gets to now be their number one killer as well, from virtually non-existent to an epidemic. Some blame this change on too much animal fat. Others blame it on too little fiber, but they both point to the same solution, right? a diet centered around unrefined plant foods. In fact, sometimes it's easier to convince patients to improve their diet by eating more of the good foods to kind of crowd out some of the less healthy options. The dietary fiber hypothesis, first proposed in the 70s, zeroed in on fiber as the dietary component that was so protective against chronic disease. And since then, evidence has certainly accumulated those who eat lots of fiber appear protected from several chronic conditions. But maybe fiber is just a marker for the consumption of foods as grown, you know, whole unprocessed plant foods, the only major source of fiber. So maybe all these studies showing fiber is good are really just showing that eating lots of unrefined plant foods are good. Fiber is just one component of plant food, and to neglect all the other components, like all the phytonutrients, may be to seriously limit our understanding. Why did Drs. Burkett, Terrell, Painter, Walker, the fathers of the fiber theory, place all their bets on fiber. Well, one possible explanation for this is that they were doctors, and we doctors like to think in terms of magic bullets. I mean, that's how we're trained, you know, like one pill, one operation. They were clinicians, not nutritionists, and so they developed a reductionist approach. Right? The problem with that approach is that if we reach the wrong conclusion, we may come up with the wrong solution. Burkitt saw disease rates skyrocket after populations went from eating whole plant foods to refined plant and animal foods. But instead of telling people 
we should you know, go back to eating whole plant foods, he was so convinced fiber was the magic component, his top recommendations was eat whole grain bread, but they never used to eat any kind of bread in Uganda, and sprinkle some spoonfuls of wheat bran onto your food. But studies to this day associating high fiber intake with lower risk of disease and death relate only to fiber from food intake, rather than from fiber isolates or extracts. It's not at all clear whether fiber consumed as a supplement is beneficial. In retrospect, you know, maybe it was a mistake to isolate fiber from the overall field of plant food nutrition. The evidence supporting the value of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, as opposed to only fiber, has proved to be more consistent, much more consistent. Plant whole foods are what's of fundamental importance in our diet. Fiber is just one of the many beneficial components of fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, and beans. Much of the effort on defining fiber and studying the fiber isolate would have been better applied to a whole plant food approach. Finally, the parable of the tiny parachute explains the study that found no relationship between dietary fiber intake and diverticulosis. A study out of the University of North Carolina found no association between dietary fiber intake and diverticulosis in comparing the group that ate the highest amount, 25 grams, three times the amount of the lowest fiber intake group. They concluded that a low-fiber diet is not associated with diverticulosis. The university sent out a press release, diets high in fibers won't protect against diverticulosis. The press picked it up. Study finds high-fiber diet may not protect against diverticulosis. Went over all the paleo blogs and even medical journals, an important paper calling into question the fiber theory of the development of diverticulosis. Other editorials, though, caught the critical flaw. To understand this, let's turn to another dietary deficiency disease, scurvy. Medical experiments on prisoners in Iowa State Penitentiary showed that clinical signs of scurvy start appearing just 29 days without vitamin C. Experiments on pacifists during World War II showed the same thing, that it takes about 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day to prevent scurvy. So imagine Going back in time a few centuries, when they were still trying to figure scurvy out, Dr. James Lind had this radical theory that citrus fruits could cure scurvy. What if an experiment was designed to test this crazy theory in which sailors were given the juice of either one wedge of lemon or three wedges of lemons a day? The printing press pamphleteers would all be you know, touting the study that found that a low vitamin C diet is not associated with scurvy. See, a wedge of lemon only yields about 2 milligrams of vitamin C, and it takes 10 to prevent scurvy. So they would have been comparing 2 milligrams a day to like three times that 7 milligrams, one vitamin C deficiency dose versus another vitamin C deficiency dose. No wonder there would be no difference in scurvy rates. We evolved eating so many plants that we likely averaged around 600 mg of vitamin C a day. That's what our bodies are biologically used to getting. What about fiber? How much fiber are we used to getting? Over 100 grams a day. 
The highest fiber intake group in the North Carolina study was only eating 25, which is less than the minimum recommended daily allowance, which is about 32 grams. They didn't even make the minimum. So they, considered, they compared one fiber-deficient diet to another fiber-deficient diet. No wonder there was no difference in diverticulosis rates. The African populations, where they had essentially no diverticulosis, ate diets consisting part large platefuls of leafy vegetables, similar perhaps to what we were eating a few million years ago. They were eating plant-based diets containing 70 to 90 grams of fiber a day. Most vegetarians don't even eat that many whole plant foods, though some do. At least they hit the minimum mark and had less diverticulosis to show for it. This is a relatively small study, though. 35 years later, 47,000 people were studied confirming that consuming a vegetarian diet and high intake of dietary fiber both associated with a lower risk of both hospitalization and death from diverticular disease. And they had enough people to tease it out. Right? Compared to those eating a single serving of meat a day or more, those that had less than half a serving appeared to have a 16% lower risk. Pescatarians, and no meat except some fish, down 23%, though neither are statistically significant. But eating vegetarian was 35% lower risk, and those eating strictly plant-based appeared to be at 78% lower risk. As with all lifestyle interventions, it only works if you do it. High-fiber diets only work if they're actually high-fiber. We would love it if you could share with us your stories about reinventing your health through evidence-based nutrition. Go to nutritionfacts.org forward slash testimonials. We may share it with our social media to help inspire others. To see any graphs, charts, graphics, images, or studies mentioned here, please go to the Nutrition Facts podcast landing page. There you'll find all the detailed information you need, plus links to all the sources we cite for each of these topics. Be sure to check out my new How Not to Die cookbook. It's beautifully designed with more than 100 recipes for delicious and nutritious plant-based meals, snacks, and beverages. All proceeds I receive from the sale of all my books goes to charity. NutritionFacts.org is a nonprofit science-based public service where you can sign up for free daily updates on the latest in nutrition research via bite-sized videos and articles. Everything on the website is free. There's no ads, no corporate sponsorship, strictly non-commercial. Selling anything just put up as a public service, as a labor of love, as a tribute to my grandmother, whose own life was saved with evidence-based nutrition. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Facts. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Greger.